This is an ABC podcast. The commander of Operation Sovereign Borders goes online to deliver a blunt message. The Australian government's decision to resolve legacy temporary visa caseloads does not change how Australia protects its borders. Operation Sovereign Border may remain unchanged, but the fortunes of thousands of refugees have changed substantially for the better. These limbo residents can now plan to root themselves in Australia, giving them permission to engage in the everyday stuff of life, like applying for a bank loan or getting an education. Many of the 19,000 refugees on these visas chose to live in regional Australia. Today in Australia-wide, what will these changes mean for them and the towns they call home? I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia-wide, coming to you from Wadjuk country. The federal government is promoting its new plan to discourage asylum seeker boats coming to Australia, but the Prime Minister has warned they won't stop overnight. Susan MacDonald reports from Parliament House. Asylum seekers who arrive by boat will be sent to Papua New Guinea for processing and if they are deemed refugees, they'll be resettled there. The new policy will be backed up by an advertising blitz at home and in the region. The Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, has recorded a video message. Nobody should expect the boats to stop tomorrow. In fact, people smugglers will now try and test our resolve. My name is Scott Morrison and I am the new Minister for Immigration and border protection in the new Australian government led by Prime Minister Abbott. You have been brought to this place here because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. The new Australian government will not be putting up with those sorts of arrivals. The Migration and Maritime Powers Legislation Amendment resolving the Asylum Legacy Caseload Bill 2014 will amend the Migration Act, specifically the bill reintroduces temporary protection visas. The government is not resiling from providing protection, but rather is providing temporary protection, consistent with this government's principles of rewarding enterprise and its belief in a strong regional Australia, a new visa, the Safe Haven Enterprise Visa, will also be created. I've met with many refugees, refugees who have been living in an undecided situation for years many lives destroyed by this policy. Many families have been separated and a big part of it is invisible violence. You know, many refugees who are living in the community, many of them work, but actually they are carrying trauma. They, they suffered a lot by this system. Refugee advocate Barus Bachani. Thousands of people living in this state of limbo woke to the surprising news on Monday that their lives was just about to change for the better. Because after 10 years of living on a temporary protection visa, the Australian government had decided to allow around 19,000 people apply for permanent residency. These people were not allowed to apply for permanent visas because they'd arrived in Australia by boat before the federal government started turning the boats back in 2013. For many of these people... Australia was a safe haven. Once granted temporary asylum, they had a choice to make. Stay in metro areas and you could go on a three-year visa with few rights, go bush and you'd get a five-year visa with access to government services. So for many, that meant that safe haven became somewhere in regional Australia. 
but their future was uncertain and so too were their rights as non-Australians. To talk about what this change means for both them and the towns that they live in, I'm joined by Anita Nathan, who's the chairperson for Goldfields Multicultural Community Organisation in Kalgoorlie. Welcome, Anita. Hello, how are we all doing? Very Thank well. You for the introduction. Not at all. And the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, Paul Power, who happens to be in Ballarat today. G'day, Hello, Paul. And then Philip Laco, who's a refugee from South Sudan, and he's coming to us from the Gruyere Gold Mine, which is 160 k's northeast of Laverton. So pretty warm where you are today, Philip, I'd imagine. Yes, certainly it's uh, very warm, and I've got few flies as well. Uh, yes. <laughs> the flies in, in, in that town, I, I have I've felt them on my face myself. I know exactly what it's like. Now, like you've all joined me from fairly far-flung places, but I'm going to start with you, Paul, because obviously in your role, you've a long history in, in what brought us to this point in time. Can you explain how 19,000 people found themselves on temporary protection visas? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. The Temporary protection policy was reintroduced um, by the Abbott government um, uh, a year after it was elected in, in 2013. And the, the policy actually had existed for about eight or nine years uh, during the, the period of the Howard government, but was actually overturned by the Rudd government after they were elected. And the people who were given temporary protection were people who had arrived in Australia by boat to seek asylum before um, mid-July 2013 and who hadn't had their um, refugee claims finalised at the time of the change of government in 2013. So when the Abbott government was elected, they did uh, three things. They started patrols of the seas, uh, you know, under Operation Sovereign Borders and, and began turning boats of asylum seekers back in pretty significant numbers, you know, principally to Indonesia, but also to Sri Lanka and, and to countries like Vietnam. They continued the policy that Kevin Rudd had started in July 2013 of any arrivals by boat who'd reached Australian shores were sent to Manus Island or to Nauru, never to be allowed to settle in the country. But the third thing they did was they decided that they would actually also introduce a policy of punishment for people who'd arrived before uh, July 2013, before Operation Sovereign Borders started, and ensure that anyone uh, who'd arrived by boat without a visa to seek asylum would not get access to permanent protection. Well, since late 2014 until now, just over 30,000 people have actually had claims assessed and um, yeah, more than 19,500 people have been found to be refugees. And it's those people uh, who who'll get access to permanent protection and under this commitment that the Labor Party made in opposition that they would do this. So 19,500 people qualified for this temporary protection visa. Once on that visa, and once that net was put around that group of people, what did it preclude people from doing? What did it, what did it mean for the way they were living their lives in this kind of period of time? Well, I think the two uh, most significant impacts were the fact that people were locked in uh, this situation of having to reapply for refugee protection every three or five years. And, of course, the assessment of their refugee protection was not about the situation that they faced when they fled their country of origin. It was about what situation they would face if they were returned to their country now. And, of course, this creates you know, a great deal of fear amongst people that Australia may decide to reinterpret what's happening in, in people's source countries. The threat of forced return to their country has not left, so they're actually still living 
um, as refugees, not as people who once were refugees and are able to get on with the rest of their lives. So psychologically, it has a huge impact. The even bigger impact, you know, was for many of the people on this visa who had immediate family still in situations of danger or in very uh, quite dire circumstances in countries of asylum over the past 18 months. You know, there have been quite a number of refugees on temporary protection who've been powerless to do anything at all to assist the family members, uh, you know, who are trying to get out of Afghanistan. And so those who've come to Australia from Afghanistan who arrived prior to this temporary protection policy being implemented, they would be able to apply for family reunion if, if families were still separated. The case of temporary protection visa holders, they were unable to do that. And, you know, this was the greater punishment. Um, there are also other practical problems that people faced as temporary residents are unable to get affordable access to tertiary education. So international student fees were well beyond the financial capacity of basically everybody in this situation. Some small numbers of people did get uh, scholarships through universities. And there are also practical issues such as um, not being able to get a loan um, mm. as a person who is a temporary resident of the country. Banks will not loan money for housing mortgages or for the establishment of businesses or the expansion of businesses. The significance of this change you know, is it gives people who in practical terms were always going to remain in Australia for the rest of their lives. I mean, the, the chances are actually pretty small that things will change and people will be able to return. So it, it enables them to be able to do the sorts of things that every permanent resident in Australia now, now is able to enjoy. So what has been the response then? I'd imagine it was a huge response this week then to the council. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting that... Um, I think everyone was expecting the Labor Party would be faster in implementing the policy and, um, you know, so there was growing angst and, you know, concern and, you know, discontent about the fact that it was taking so long. You know, there were lots of hints that it was going to be announced before Christmas. This was the positive news that people were hoping for and looking for. Many, many tears of joy and relief being, being shed. Anita, in Kalgoorlie, you work with both refugees and migrants. What's been the response there from the people you've chatted to? Oh, I've been chatting with a lot of immigrants and, uh, um, you know, refugees as well in town. And they're all very excited. They might know someone, someone who's been a neighbour or a friend or um, who've been affected for the last 10 years since 2013, been in the limbo land um, and struggled without Mm. uh, knowing what their outcome of uh, permanency in being in Australia would be. So they're all very excited and uh, they're all looking forward to actually move to the regional towns. Anita, you you referred there to being in the limbo land and and Philip, you may have something to say about this too. Is that, that's almost a state of mind, I would think. Is that how people feel about it, Philip? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think all the time when people are forced to flee the country of origin and they come to countries like Australia, uh, they have a lot of hope and when they arrive here, then um, things turn to be completely different. What the government has done has obviously actually demonstrated empathy and compassion toward these people. Because in the, in the last uh, 10 years, obviously, it means that these individuals, to a degree, were actually questioning their identity and their self-worth as human beings and their contribution to this country that appears to promise so much, but at the same time is is actually demonstrating very little. So. The Albanese government, and in fact, the Minister Diles, I think they've definitely made a very crucial, life-changing decision, which 
I believe is going to transform lives for years to come. Philip, what sort of perceptions of refugees have you come across in the community? Majority of people that I interact with do know that Australia is, is a country that, in fact, has so much to give uh, in the sense that there are a lot of opportunities and anyone who wants to dream of becoming anything, uh, that dream can be possible. And I believe government sometimes has to make decisions that are, to a degree, political driven. But the aspect of humanity is sometimes lost in the political uh, discourse. And that, to a degree, has actually caused a lot of um, confusion in, in communities. And most people as well do, do come to Australia with enormous amount of trauma that I've gone through. Even myself, when I arrived here, because I went through a lot of, a lot of trauma uh, in the war of South Sudan that lasted for over two, two, two decades, actually 21 years, we were actually helped by Dr. Ostrowski. There was a company, uh, that organization that he runs called ADE. And that was when I saw what compassion actually means. And Australia, to a degree, overall is a compassionate nation. Philip, you, you work on a mine site, on a gold mine site in Laverton. Um, and, you know, mine sites can be quite, quite um, masculine and quite... Um, Particular environments, like if you're sitting at the mine mess, would, would someone come and chat to you about your background? Is that a conversation you're comfortable having? Yes. Um, yeah, people do talk. Uh, obviously, I'm tall, I'm dark-skinned. People, of course, sometimes that draw attention a bit. Uh, in general, people want to have a chat just for curiosity. And I believe that is the only way I think we can actually embrace this multiculturalism. But yeah, so I've been the mining for quite a number of years, so the thing that I speak like Australian, which is a long way away. Um, but, but yeah, I do, I do have a lot of good people that I, I talk with at work. And of course, most of them are very keen to know about my, my personal life story as well. Anita, you help refugees and migrants settle in Kalgoorlie. And many people might not know, but Kalgoorlie is actually quite a multicultural place. What brings many of those people to Kalgoorlie, to another gold mining town? <laughs> it's a very great question. Like, uh, yes, Calgary is very multicultural and uh, we've got a lot of sporting groups, art groups and um, lots for families and children to do in the local little town. And um, a lot of promising uh, uh, mine sites and new developments are happening as well. So, you know, we, there are a lot of local businesses in town who would love to actually assist um, in training for the skill shortages in Kalgoorlie for these refugees. So, you know, if the um, refugees, now, now, now the uh, permanent visa holders, if they can actually utilise the space and uh, look into the local businesses and if they can... Um, and they're happy in relocating as well into the Goldfields region. So if they can actually um, get trained in the skills shortage and um, come to Kalgoorlie, that will be a life changer for them. Philip, why do you think refugees gravitate to regional towns? What is it about a regional town that might make a family decide, well, that if I'm living in Australia, that's where I'd like to live? I honestly believe that... Um, so. I know the United Nations High Commission of Refugees uh, tries its best to make sure that it kind of map refugees, you know, refugee camp to countries that to a degree speak the language. 
predominantly a lot of migrants actually come from uh, rural from rural areas. So, in fact, bringing refugees to countries like Australia and then it's straight away into the, into the mainstream cities, to a degree, actually, it, it, it kind of causes some form of trauma. And I, I think um, I remember having a conversation um, um, with someone earlier on that it it probably beneficial for refugees to start in the region. At least that way, uh, the surrounding is a little bit familiar to where they come from. And of course, for, for instance, I did not know how to turn on a gas cooker uh, in the house. Uh, I, I did not even know how to, to 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 cook. Like that was even a lot of some of the challenges catching public transport. There were definitely a lot of a lot of issues um, in the in the town. Although, um, and that's why I think it, obviously there's a lot of conversation required in this space because there will be a lot of services required in the region. But I think regional regional environment, there's also element of, um, I think, community-based approach into solving some of the social issues in the, commun- in the region. Um, and I, I believe it will be actually more beneficial um, to actually allow. I remember speaking to also another colleague about the Queensland model where uh, refugees were actually given farming um, plots to actually do their farming activities. So bringing their, their their skill from their country of origin to actually do farming here and then provided a market to actually sell these products. That, to a degree, I think is something that needs to be adopted, I think, Australia-wide. And that will actually help the region as well to, to sort of embrace this new new era. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident a lot of a lot of a lot of these asylum seekers who are now going to permanent residency would 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 possibly uh, migrate. So government should somehow come up with programs that entice this this nearly migrants to regional areas to sort of improve. Um, just a final comment. Um, so look at it in terms of health sector. Most of the people that work there are predominantly actually people who have migrated from another country. And we should really look about the econo- economical benefits of these, these decisions that to a degree can actually change people's lives. Anita, you often help people get comfortable in the community of Kalgoorlie. Is there enough support around for the kind of challenges that Philip has just described? Well, look, we do have uh, challenges in uh, the support of mental uh, well-being and, um, you know, uh, for the uh, refugees. But in saying that it's just not in the regional town, it's everywhere in Australia. We need to have a lot of support workers and we need a lot of um, um, medical staff to look after uh, and support these refugees so we're doing our best here to for the refugees and asylum seekers um, based on their bravery and struggle that they have um, gone through all these years um, but we do need more support. Paul would you agree with that? Certainly yeah and I think I mean there is certainly a, a network of agencies around the country um, who provide uh, different forms of settlement support and mental health support for for refugees, um, but um, one of one of the challenges, of course, is also to ensure that um, people who've been refugees get um, the support that they really need um, from other forms of social services. Um, and in fact, I think one of the areas where um, a- a- that our organisation and many others have been taking up is concerns, for instance. Um, in relation to how uh, former refugees are assisted in finding work. Um, so through Workforce Australia and its pre- predecessors, the systems are 
really designed to reward um, contractors for you know achieving particular outcomes as part of their contracts. Um, and you know often the skills that people um, bring to Australia from from their own country, they, their skills might not be fully recognised. They might be partly recognised, or they might not be recognised at all in Australia. Um, but often, you know, there there are many people who've been refugees, you know, who have skills in fields that are very much needed in Australia. Mm. Um, and uh, and yet, you know, the uh, Workforce Australia system rewards um, contractors for finding any job. Um, so, in fact, you know, even today, speaking to somebody who's uh, highly skilled in, in dentistry, talking about um, his, his experiences um, uh, of getting assistance and, you know, he's uh, yeah, currently working in a supermarket um, and not using his skills, which would be greatly needed, particularly in regional Australia. All three of you have said that this, in some shape or form, have said that this could be a real opportunity for regional Australia, um, that there are a number of people who it may suit them to, to live in a regional town um, and also that those skills could be very beneficial for, for those towns. But Philip, I know it was life-changing for you when your wife was able to join you here in Australia. How important is it that that door is open to this group of people, that family can come and how how do you think that might change things for people living in regional towns if they can you know, bring their family um, to join them? I honestly believe, yeah, it'll be, like I said earlier on, it's life, definitely life-changing and in fact it's kind of restore hope and dignity and self-esteem, self-worth as well and it, it, it just, it just the right, it was, I think the government just made the right thing um, and I believe, uh, like for instance, it just, it's almost unfathomable that you could actually have a policy that deliberately separate families. And um, I believe, like I think Paul mentioned, there would be people just, you know, could not even expect that this day could come, um, uh, Monday that's just gone. So uh, it's definitely, it's going to be life-changing. Um, so for me, I waited for three years, um, and, and that was a long time. And, and in fact, I mentioned briefly that I had, I was experiencing a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's kind of like that time was was actually reminding me of, of despair. And a time I would refuse to go to bed, thinking that if I close my eyes and and fall asleep, I may not wake up. So I was literally deliberately fighting, sleeping, and that caused me um, quite a lot in terms of work. Um, I was quite tired most of the time, and also there are. Obviously, some countries. Um, so maybe a little bit of background that opportunities like this definitely uh, bring. Uh, it, like for me, uh, honestly, um, the first time, uh, all I wanted in life was to have a roof or a house that does not leak every time it rains. That's all what I wanted in life. Australia gave me that, and a lot of people. I even met a, a colleague from Iraq who said he has never tasted a banana until he turned 23 years old. So these are basic human rights things, basic things that we in Australia here take for granted. But And then to go as far as denying families to be reunited, it's even unbelievable. And a lot of people from African continent, for instance, I actually cannot even bring their families here to actually see their grandkids. And that obviously, hopefully, the government can actually also look into it and a few other parts of the continent, even in South America, 
to allow parents to be able to come and see their, their grand, grandchildren and even children here in Australia. Philip Laco, um, thanks so much for talking to Australia Wide um, from the Gruyere Gold Mine. Paul Power, the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, who joins us from our studio in Ballarat, and Anita Nathan, who has strolled down Hannon Street and gone into the Kalgoorlie studio. She's the chairperson for Goldfields Multicultural Community Organisation. Um, wonderful chat. Thanks very much for giving your time to Australia Wide and, and um, looking at what this could mean for not only the refugees themselves, but also for the regional towns that they live in. Thank you. Thank you, Sinead. Thank you so much. ABC Australia Wide. It would be really great to see even us bushies out here have access to the diagnostic and treatment services that we really need. On ABC Radio. And that's Australia Wide for this week. Remember, you can podcast the show whenever you want to. Just go to the ABC Listen app and you'll find us there. And while you're there, why don't you subscribe? Thanks to Madison Snow for all of her production work this week. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.